0: experts at helping you plan the perfect disney vacation visit them on the web at dreams hey there hi there ho there and welcome to episode 190 of the Diz unplugged connecting with walt podcast i am your host and Diz historian michael bowling and i am joined by my co-host producer executive producer and good friend craig williams craig how are you today i'm doing great how are you michael I'm doing well, thank you. Enjoying our lovely spring weather since we, you know, we have to always do a weather <laughs> weather report every yeah. once in a while. Exactly. We are hitting 80s for this this holy week here, so um, it's a it's really quite lovely right now.
1: Yeah, it'll so. uh, make for a, a good good holiday weekend for you. And uh, we're kind of right. We're doing the opposite here in Florida. We're we're going through the, uh, well, we went through uh, some pretty, pretty hot temperatures the past week. And we have, we have, uh, a little cold front that I believe is about to, to go through. And, uh, like the day this is released, I believe it's going to be in the sixties here in Florida, which is oh, my very exciting. I thought for sure that that ship has sailed, but, uh, talk about, talk about an Easter miracle having temperatures in the sixties and seventies all the way in april i'll take it mhm yeah definitely so
0: we wanted to wish our friends who are celebrating passover we hope you had a happy and joyous passover celebration this past week and for everyone who is celebrating easter you know we we are, we are we're recording this right before the for many christians the Tridum, tridum starts I I always mispronounce it, even though I taught in a Catholic school for years. um, Is is starting by the time we're released, it's either going to be Good Friday or Holy Saturday. So we want to um, wish you a happy Easter and hope that the Easter Bunny brings you lots of
1: lots of chocolate Easter eggs and marshmallow chickies and and things like that. So, or if you don't eat chocolate, just that he brings you regular eggs that you can use for your favorite egg dish.
0: Yes, deviled eggs. Oh, I love deviled, deviled
1: eggs. eggs. I'll take a good scrambled egg sandwich any day of the week. Mm-hmm. My father, I my father, I never had scrambled egg sandwiches. My father liked fried egg
0: sandwiches. I, I, so I remember. Those too. Yeah, yeah. I've never had them, and you know what's funny is every Saturday, because my father, you know, kept he worked the shop on saturday alone and so because my mother was home with us and dealing with the house and all that but she would always make him two fried egg sandwiches for lunch put the wrap them in wax paper and put them in a paper bag and i would walk them over to our shop so that he would have lunch but i never had any interest in fried egg sandwiches yeah. which is funny because i love fried eggs so
1: I just I love all egg-based sandwiches. I'm I'm okay with all of them. Egg-based burritos, just eggs. I'm a breakfast. I'm a breakfast guy. I just don't like usually eating breakfast when I wake up. But there's oh. we'll get into that therapy another day. I'm sure when <laughs> but, we do. But our I read. do like I do like egg salad sandwiches. Yeah. I make those yeah. a lot. And in me too. The we'll, spring. We'll go over all of these when we do our <laughs> uh, episode on Clara Cluck one day, and yes, get and, down and, the
0: chicken route. That's right, and and how we enjoy her prod, <laughs> progeny fried or yes. baked. And <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have, we're starting out joking all that, we do have some sad news. Somebody very important to probably a theme park near you passed away this um past week, and that's Jim Cora. And I was lucky to have met him. I actually met him when I worked for... When Mickey Mouse was my boss and I, and then I met him several times at the Walt Disney Family Museum. So you might be wondering, who is Jim Cora? Well, in 1957, Jim Cora or James Cora started out as a part-time attraction host at Disneyland, cleaning the 3D glasses for the Mickey Mouse Club Theater. And over the next 43 years in a Walt Disney Company's, Cora's management skills helped him climb through the company until he retired in 2001 as the chairman of Disney International. So um, during a presentation at the Walt Disney Family Museum, I heard Jim Cora tell a story about his early days at Disneyland and what he would do is he uh, there were no operations or procedures or safety manuals and things at the park and so Jim on the attractions he rode on started writing them up and writing all these little manuals and things. So if, if I remember correctly, he wrote one for the Matterhorn. And so he was walking across the park one day when uh, Walt Disney saw him and Jim had all these binders with papers and all this stuff. And Walt asked him, what is all that? And, and Jim explained to him what he had been doing and, and writing all of these procedures and, conduct and, you know, scripts for cast members and things like that. And and Walt then sent... And Jim Cora was a teenager when he was doing all this. Walt sent him to the Disneyland Administration Building to find Van Arsdale, France. And Cora was just instructed to tell him that Walt sent you because I think he might have something for you. And Van Arsdale, France... Was the founder of Disney University, and he was the one that you know he originated Disney traditions, and you know all the training within the park for cast members, and that's how I met Jim Cora, because when I was working for the Mouse in the club, uh, we had to take uh, we, because we we had to learn traditions. Now that so we had a modified program. Be- given our age and what our roles were. But we were going to be in the park, and we were in the parks. Um, we had to go through all of that training. So they modified one for us. And it's funny, when I met Jim, and I told him, you probably don't remember this. And I told him about the program. He said, I remember that program. He said, and I remember you. And I thought, this is probably not good that he remembers yeah. me. <laughs> so, anyway, so I didn't really want to pursue it. I said, really? I, said, I, I was really, really young back then. He said, oh, no, I remember you. <laughs> I thought, he's either being nice or I was just so terrible that <laughs> I stood out.
1: That's so, great though.
0: That's hilarious. Yeah, it was. It, it was hilarious. I was really shocked. I mean, I think when he saw the look on my face, he just grinned. I remember he always had a grin on his face. Um just mm. easygoing and easy to approach, is what I remember of him. Um when I was young and also when uh when he was at the museum doing his presentations. So Jim Cora went on to join the opening team of Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room and then to the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World where he was responsible for implementing the Disney Way of Leadership program. And then Cora then helped redesign the area concept of the Disneyland Park. And that led him to be responsible for Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. So... um I'm not sure what the area concept is. I don't know if that's something when you were a cast member in a college program, Craig, if they had that at Walt Disney World.
1: I've not
0: heard that term before. Okay. So. Well, in 1979, Jim Cora became the Managing Director of Operations for the Tokyo Disneyland Project. He held responsibility for all of the operational planning, the management, and training for the park. And before the park opened, he was promoted to Vice President of Walt Disney Productions Japan Limited to help oversee the Oriental Land Company and to uphold Disney's operational standards. Now, after his time in Japan, Jim moved back home to California and assumed the role of vice president of Disney International in 1983. And shortly thereafter, he took on the project of negotiating agreements and master planning for the Disneyland Paris project. He was promoted to vice president and chief operating officer for the Euro Disney Corporation. Then in 1995, Jim was promoted to president of Disneyland International, where he oversaw the development of Tokyo Disneyland and Tokyo Disney Sea. And then his final focus was to develop and maintain strategies that would allow Tokyo Disney Resort to succeed and grow. And he retired from this position in 2001 and was named a Disney legend in 2005. So Josh DeMorrow, the current Disney Parks chairman stated that Jim Cora was one of their last connections to Walt Disney and that he will be missed dearly. So uh and that is sad that we are losing you know
1: these these connections of people who worked you know directly with Walt. Yeah. Uh especially someone of this magnitude that you might not have known much about him. You might not have ever even heard his name, but uh I, I hope you sat back and listened and heard how important he was and uh, not even necessarily how important he was, but, uh, how much he touched in his time with the Disney company. That's a, that's a big loss. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a really, a really big loss, but I mean, that's, and yeah. he's, he,
0: he has a big responsibility for so much of what we enjoy, mm-hmm. you know, in the parks today.
1: Yeah. It's so, very sad, but it's, I uh, hope, hopefully his, you know, his legacy will continue to live on in the parks.
0: I hope so. And with the cast members yes. whose lives he touched and trained. And the next time you're at Disneyland, be sure to check out Jim's window on Main Street, USA above the Disney Clothiers Limited. It reads global exports and expats specializing in land and sea operations. Our motto, The Sun Never Sets on Our Magical Kingdoms, Jim Cora, Master Operator. So I think that's a lovely and fitting tribute. Well, in our ongoing series on the history of Walt Disney Animation, we've talked about the Alice comedies, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, Mickey Mouse the Silly Symphonies, Donald Duck. And in our last episode, we began our exploration of Walt Disney's first full-length animated feature, and first in the line of Disney princesses, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Making an animated feature was one of Walt's boldest strokes, and a logical follow-up to his string of successes with all his cartoon shorts. Walt would later write, As a matter of fact, we were practically forced into the features field. We not only had to have its new story material, but also we had to have feature profits to justify our continuing expansion, and we sensed that we had gone about as far as we could in the short subject field, without getting ourselves in a rut. We needed this new adventure, this kick in the pants, to jar loose some new enthusiasm and inspiration. Now, making Snow White wasn't impossible, but the challenges were enormous. To hold the audience's interest for more than an hour, the characters would have to convey more complex emotions than anything they had previously animated. In 1935, Walt sent art teacher Don Graham on a recruitment campaign to find 300 new artists. Walt instructed Graham to look for good draftsmanship, knowledge of caricature, action, acting, the mechanics of animation, story structure, and audience values, and an ability to think up and put over gags. So from what I read, he like gutted every art school, starting with Chenard. And, and it just went across the country all the way to New York. Wow. That's, yeah. that's a lot, but uh, yeah. necessary.
1: <laughs> Mm -hmm.
0: Walt, Roy, Lillian, and Edna took a trip to Europe in the summer of 1935, and work on Snow White was halted till Walt's return. This trip served to strengthen Walt's plans for Snow White. Whilst in Paris, Walt came across a cinema whose entire program was made up of Mickey Mouse and Silly Symphony Shorts. In an interview with Peter Martin in later years, Walt said they were putting five or six of these things together and running them. Now, this all-Disney program had been showing in Paris for over a year and had already inspired at least one all-cartoon cinema in the United States. And said, Walt, I made up my mind that I was going to make this feature. I just felt sure if I made a feature, it would go, you see? The Disneys returned to the United States in August 1935, and Walt was refreshed and full of enthusiasm for Snow White. At a New York press conference, he said, We never tried a feature before because we didn't have enough confidence in ourselves. We had to be sure first. You know, it's a big thing. We've got it all worked out now. Yes, everything is all ready. We'll start at once. Walt returned to the studio suffused with European atmosphere and ready to devote his energy to Snow White. And Walt had brought back quite a souvenir collection with him. Walt had brought back with him a large selection of nearly 350 European storybooks with, as Walt wrote in a memo, very fascinating illustrations of little people, bees and small insects who live in mushrooms, pumpkins, etc. This quaint atmosphere fascinates me. Now the topic for this memo was the future of the cartoon shorts, but Snow White was a story of European origin and perfect for enriched European atmospheric touches. Walt added these 350 storybooks to the studio library, and later that year, he added 90 more books from France, 81 from England, 149 from Germany, and 15 from Italy. I was thinking if he shipped, if he brought those 350 books on the ocean liner that he traveled on, I, I hope he tipped the porters really well. Yeah, right? Um, <laughs> that's, it, a little, uh, it, that's
1: a little significant. It's a lot.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Walt did decide to give Snow White the look of a European storybook illustration. Much of the film's design style was created by Albert Herder and Gustav Tengren. The Swiss-born Herter was one of the studio's most influential designers. Some of his work included the living safety pins in Lullaby Land and the animated sweets in Cookie Carnival, a short that was also considered a test for Snow White in terms of animation and character personality development. Herder was placed in charge of overseeing the backgrounds to be sure they maintained a quaint, old-world atmosphere. A noted book illustrator, Tengren created delicate watercolor studies for the film that would influence the old-world look of the film. He would also create much of the publicity art for the film the public would see when the film was released, most notably the classic poster design used by theaters in their advertising. Their shared duty of Snow White, along with Joe Grant, was to create its atmosphere and to provide inspirational drawings for the story department, layout department, and the animator's use. The artists also studied the films of the great German Expressionists, whose influence can be seen in the darker sequences of Snow White. Such as her flight through the dark and scary forest, and the queen's transformation into the witch. I know, like the cabinet of Doctor Caligari was one of the ones that they um, drew from. I remember oh. watching that when I was at university, when I was in a film study class, and I thought, yeah, that that's a really, uh, it's a really dark one. <laughs> to, I've to never draw seen. From. It. Yeah, you you enjoy it being the the film, you know, critic and expert that you are. Uh, You flatter me. (laughs) (laughs) The carved wooden beams and furniture in the dwarf's cottage recall 16th century... Switzerland or the Black Forest region of Germany, and much of this is due to Albert Herder's influence. Snow White's costume with its puffed sleeves, high collar, and fitted bodice suggests a blend of the robes of the 16th century portraits and the fashions worn by Shirley Temple, a popular child actor at that time. Arthur Rackham's quaint pen- Ink and watercolor drawings, illustrating English, continental, and American fairy tales and legends, including his fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm, were familiar throughout the English-speaking world. Rumor around the studio was that Walt had invited Mr. Rackham to contribute to To Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, but at eighty six years of age he was too frail and too happily retired in his English countryside cottage
1: to accept. His have you seen any of his books, his water his drawings, Craig? I I don't. That was a name Hmm. that I did not recognize when when I was looking through the script, so I need to I need to start looking into that more. But I I mean I'm sure I am sure I have seen it's somewhere, especially if uh, it's ever been connected with Snow White, like in this way. I, I'm sure that I've I've seen mm-hmm. something. When you when you see
0: his drawings and illustrations, you'll realize, oh, you have seen them most definitely. I had a number of of storybooks that had his illustrations in them, and and you can see how th- that definitely his style
1: influenced um, Snow White. Yeah, That's I need to. I need to do a a big dive into his work and Mm. and really check them all out.
0: Now, Walt wanted Snow White to sing and dance. And Walt's decision to make Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs a musical would influence American animation for decades. Songs could bolster emotional moments in a film, as they did in the theater, And, as Walt had learned with Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf from The Three Little Pigs, appealing songs would draw people in to see the film. By the end of 1935, Walt had set up Snow White's production system that was essentially an extension of the system already in place for the shorts. The story would be divided into sequences, 31 of them for the finished film. With each sequence being produced as if it were a separate short, the sequence directors would report to a single supervising director who reported to Walt. The myriad of details involved with producing a feature film were delegated through many levels of an increasingly large staff. But Walt's control and attention to detail extended through every level and coordinated all these separate sequences into a cohesive whole. Walt assigned David Hand as the supervising director, and Hand was one of the studio's top directors of the short subjects. He had directed several shorts, including the Academy Award-winning shorts Three Orphan Kittens and The Country Cousin. The studio's other top directors, Wilfred Jackson and Ben Sharpstein, each directed several sequences, as did Bill Cottrell, who was one of the best minds in the story department. Perce Pierce, who was relatively new to the studio, would end up directing more footage than any other director, and Han said that this was because he delegates to other people all work that is not essential for him to do. Offhand, I don't know of any other director who will do that. Purse has turned out more work in a short time than others because he is smart. So there there you go. Delegate what you can and focus on the essential.
1: Yeah, that's a, a good so, so. lesson for every single person out there who's in a position to mm-hmm. to be able to delegate if you can. It's that's, it's so freeing. absolutely.
0: In the final months of 1935, work on the story of Snow White had resumed. As Walt adapted the story, he took an element from Cinderella that was also used in Winthrop Ames' play and the Paramount film Walt had seen as a boy. Walt Snow White would be reduced to menial labor around the castle and wear rags. In meetings, Walt said, she's got to be doing some Cinderella type of work, something dirty. Her dress here should be the Cinderella type. Otherwise, Walt worked to remain true to the original Grimm's brother's tale. Walt was aware of what other plays and films had changed from the original tale, but he instructed his writers to restore many of the ideas those productions had removed, to tighten the plot, and eliminate superfluous scenes and dialogue. Some theatrical versions had padded the story and added gratuitous characters and scenes that had no connection with the plot and most of those disappeared from Walt's version. Although the Grimm's brother's tale was not long, Walt trimmed some of the story for his film. For a time, he considered retaining two of the witch's three attempts on Snow White's life, the poisoned comb and the poisoned apple, but finally decided to use only the apple. Walt reduced the story to its essentials, and apart from the prince's final discovery of Snow White in the glass coffin, all the action in Walt's version takes place over three days. Yeah. So that may answer a question that you
1: had about how long is the film, mm-hmm. time-wise. Yeah, I, uh, I, I just have to say, dropping the poisoned comb is... So smart. I mean, it just added a, it added a level of, uh, I I don't, I'm trying to figure out the exact word for it, but it made the poison apple iconic because Mm -hmm. of it. If, if you had a poisoned comb and a poisoned apple, I don't think we'd be sitting here and knowing like, oh, a poison apple, that's, easily that's that's snow white uh it's disney has helped take that to the next level and that's why outside of well, i don't know if it'll be outside of snow white's enchanted wish anymore but outside of scary adventures you know you had the you had the apple and mm-hmm. it's just uh you know a, a good a good call uh a, in the long run with it i don't think we would put so much stock into it nowadays if if it would have been more than just the apple
0: you know, it's funny. I, I was thinking about the apple being iconic and identifiable with Snow White, like you said. And I thought I was reading recently on the um, the you know you know the castle at Hong Kong Disneyland has mm-hmm. been you know redone, reconstructed, and and it now yeah, I don't know now it's like the home of thirteen princesses or something, and and on each of the towers there's there's something iconic for, I guess so you know where they live, something iconic and a filial or something about um, each princess that's living in there. And Snow White's tower has the apple. And I got to thinking, you know, somebody tried to kill you with an apple. You probably not want to be associated with apples ever again in your life. Oh. <laughs> and here it is. Now you will forever be connected to an
1: apple. And I thought that that might make her not happy. <laughs> yeah, I never thought about that, but that is that is hilarious. That's funny. Mm-hmm. Now if the idea of creating a feature-length animated
0: film was not enough of a challenge, Walt's selection of the fairy tale of Snow White made it even more difficult because the main character was not a simple, broadly caricatured, cartoony character. Snow White was a delicate, feminine human being. Finding the right look for the heroine of the film was essential. Audiences had to believe she was a real young woman with believable thoughts and emotions. If they didn't take Snow White into their hearts, the film would fail, regardless of how funny the dwarfs might be. The character design of Snow White was fluid, and studio artists created several versions. There were blonde, red-headed, and even cartoony versions of the character tailored to the mechanics of animation. Grim Natwick, who had designed Betty Boop for the Max Fleischer Studio and animated young female characters at the Ub Iwerks Studio, was recruited because of his skill with feminine characters. Natwick began to define and animate Snow White. His early model drawings show her as a little girl with large, widely spaced eyes, pursed lips, and a little chin. He experimented with various hairstyles and hair colors, some of which were in direct contrast with the Grimm's brothers' description of Snow White, with hair as black as ebony. Natwick's versions looked remarkably similar to Betty Boop, (laughs) and they put him at odds with Hamilton Lusk, who had earned the right to be the presumptive head animator of the character. In 1935, the head animators were Hamilton Lusk, Les Clark, and Fred Moore, who had no training other than what Walt had offered them through Don Graham's night classes and through constant work. These men, along with Norm Ferguson, would lead the next generation of studio artists. Walt encouraged all his artists, old and new, to attend the various classes Don Graham held from 8 a.m. until 9 p.m. Instruction stressed line drawing over color, and in life classes the artists drew from the live model and from animals brought onto the lot. There were regular trips to the zoo at Griffith Park down the street from the studio and twice-weekly action analysis classes in which short pieces of live-action film were studied to learn the fundamentals of motion. The purpose of these classes was not to turn the studio artists into imitators of nature, which had little practical application on the job but to make them such intuitive observers of nature that they could caricature it, which was at the heart of the studio's purpose. And Frank Thomas remembered, Walt always told us that the most important thing you have to do is observe, observe, watch dogs, watch people, watch different kinds of people, watch what they wear, watch what they do, see what things show their personalities, which things reveal their thought processes. It's probably why these artists always went everywhere with a pad and pencil. Yeah, yeah.
1: That makes sense. Yeah.
0: The studio was growing everywhere in anticipation of the feature film. Apartment houses were leased out all over the neighborhood for the expanding animation department. The annex was built across Hyperion Avenue to house the in-betweeners, the Paint Lab, Graham's Art School, and the Ink and Paint Department. To create lifelike movements for Snow White, Walt and his animators had conceded that they would have to use live-action references. Well before Walt's 1935 memo about the project, it was already planned that filming of live models would be required. Lusk and his fellow artists resorted to rotoscope but not in the way Max Fleischer had used it back in 1915 for his Out of the Inkwell series and in the 1930s for his Betty Boop and Popeye cartoon series. Traditional rotoscoping was scorned at the Walt Disney Studio. They were committed to the study of movement and proud of their increasing ability to represent it on the screen, so they were quick to take offense at any suggestion that they might use it as a crutch to simply trace live-action footage. But the Disney artists found a new use for rotoscoping. And actors would be filmed playing the role of Snow White, and the resulting film would be traced frame by frame, just as Fleischer had traced his films two decades earlier. But these tracings would not be used for production. Rather, they would be given to the animator as a guide for production. The animator of the finished scene would be under no obligation to reproduce every detail, but would have the opportunity to analyze the essence of her movement the swing of a leg, the turn of her head, and, at the animator's discretion, incorporate those isolated actions into his animation. Recognizable human action could be applied selectively to a character designed for animation. The Disney artists had found a solution to the seemingly insurmountable problem of representing lifelike human action in an animated character, yeah.
1: it's it's really simple to think about it nowadays. That like, oh well, that that just makes sense. Like if if you're trying to recreate something you've never done before and you just can't can't get it right and natural, find find a solution. And you know, rotoscoping did help them and used it for many 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 years and, and in many different ways. And uh, it's you know I. I, at one point in time, I know I talked to some people who think it is cheating in a way, but I, I don't know. I just feel like you, you use the tools to make the best product you can possibly make and make the best art you can make. And, uh, and I, I feel like. I feel like it was it was the right way to get over the gap and add that extra sense of realism especially with Snow White and the the Seven Dwarfs. So I think I think that it was a a great a great tool that they ended up putting to use to mm-hmm. to make this happen and and really push animation to the next level and then you know it obviously it didn't stop there and they they kept pushing pushing the limits and animation has grown through the ages because of it. So I think think it was smart
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and what we'll find out in the future installments is some
0: artists found rotoscoping helpful some found it of no value at all in in trying to translate the rotoscope motion to an animated character's motion so So that is interesting yeah very To play the role for this live-action filming, the studio initially cast Virginia Davis, the girl who had played Alice um, in Walt's first Silent Alice comedies, more than a decade earlier. Ultimately, most of Snow White's action would be performed by a young woman with professional dance experience, Marjorie Belcher. Her father was the owner of a Hollywood dance school that the studio had approached for talent. During her time at the studio, she met and eventually married animator Art Babbitt. Their marriage was a short one, however, and later she would marry fellow dancer Gower Champion, and the two would go on to be a famous dance team. They were amazing. <laughs> I've seen like her other work, like in Showboat and stuff. She, I don't know how
1: she got her legs to move as fast as they did. It, 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 she was incredible. Yeah, I'm. Um, tell you what, I'm not a dancer, so I'm. I'm impressed by like all form of dancing. <laughs> yeah. 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 To create a human-like character
0: on screen who moved convincingly was only one aspect of bringing a believable Snow White to life. What kind of personality would she project? Once again, Ham, Lusk, and Grim Natwick had different visions. They were the two principal animators of Snow White, but Lusk was becoming the predominant force. He would play the determining role in the design of Snow White and was in charge of a large team who was learning how to draw and animate Snow White as he did. Natwick led a smaller team also devoted to the animation of Snow White. Lusk light Walt, like Walt, saw her as a wide-eyed, innocent girl, whilst Natwick saw her as a bit more mature and knowing young woman. Walt also recognized the fact that in this story the princess would fall in love, and he stated that she must look old enough to do so. Some of Walt's comments at the time suggested that Lusk and his team would animate the close-ups that expressed Snow White's personality, whilst Natwick's ability to animate the human form would be reserved for longer shots of Snow White in action. An important factor in this difference between Lusk and Natwick was the casting of the actress who would provide the voice of Snow White. More than 150 girls auditioned to be the voice of Snow White. Walt, not wanting his judgment to be swayed by a performer's appearance, listened to auditions through a speaker in his office whilst the candidates auditioned on a sound stage. Amongst them was a future film star, the 14-year-old Deanna Durbin, who Walt thought sounded too mature for the role. The role went to 18-year-old Adriana Casalotti, when a Disney agent called her father, who was a singing teacher, asking for candidates, Adriana, who had been listening on an extension, said, Papa, how about me, and burst into a trill. Although she did not have a lot of experience, she did have operatic training. When Walt heard her sing, "Some Day My Prince Will Come to Frank Churchill's Piano Accompaniment, Walt was convinced but it would be a year before the dialogue and songs would be finished and Casalotti could return to the studio to record the soundtrack. Casalotti's high-pitched tone suggested a childishness that characterized many female singers and actors during the 1920s and 30s. Although Casalotti was the principal dialogue coach and singing voice of Snow White, some of the other candidates who auditioned can be heard in the film. Virginia Davis recorded some miscellaneous vocal tracks that were retained and used in the final cut, and Thelma Hubbard, who was a popular radio actress who would later portray Snow White and other Disney characters on the air, performed Snow White's screams in the forest sequence and some of her little outbursts in other scenes. Of the classic heroines, Snow White is the youngest and the most innocent. She is good-natured, gentle, and helpful. Like the dwarfs did in the film, the artists referred to her as the little princess, and she quickly became real to them. In a story meeting, an artist suggested the character should fall from a higher cliff when she's running from the huntsman. Horrified, another artist replied, She'll kill herself if she falls any farther. The evil queen was sketched as both a fat, comedic cartoon type and as a stately, beautiful type. Herter and Grant designed her final form, with a face coldly beautiful. Grant also designed the queen as witch and her raven companion. The design of the dwarfs were also in flux in 1935. Herder had made the first pencil drawings, but it was up to the animators to make the final model drawings. Rotoscoping proved to be of little value to the animators. The figure of the prince was so difficult that his role was reduced to short appearances at the beginning and end of the film. And we'll examine all this and more in our next installment of the making of Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Now let's find out who will be the fairest one of all in this week in Disney history. All right. Well, for this week in Disney history, we had a tie last week, and then the tiebreaker didn't do us any good. So anyway, so we have Mary Jo back to and and Craig, of course, to. Go at it again and see whose knowledge of Disney will win out. So I'm just going to run through the rules again. Mary Jo, welcome back. Thank you. But for folks who don't know the rules, if you choose to not hear the multiple choice options, you will receive three points for a correct answer. If you choose to hear the multiple choice options, you will receive two points for a correct answer. If you ask me to remove an incorrect option, you will receive one point for a correct answer. If you correctly answer the question after your opponent answers the question incorrectly, you will receive one point. Some questions may have opportunities to earn bonus points. You can earn one point for each bonus question answered correctly. No, let's let's hope we don't go through that again. In the event of a tie, there will be a tiebreaker question. This is the part I don't want to go. You may find having a pencil and paper nearby helpful for the tiebreaker question. Okay, Mary Jo, as our returning guest, do you want to receive the first question or pass it to Craig?
2: I'm going to receive the first question,
0: please. Okay. All right. So this is for April 4th. Ward Kimball and Walt Disney visit the home of wealthy businessman Dick Jackson on April 4th, 1948. What was noteworthy about this visit that would have a significant impact on Disney history?
2: Nineteen forty eight? All I can think about was Ward Kimball is the trains named after him. But I'm gonna, I, I truly don't know. Can I I'm gonna have to go with With multiple
0: choice. Okay. A. Walt was able to secure financing to complete Cinderella. The success of this film saved the studio from failing. Or B. Walt secured Dick Jackson's support for the Mickey Mouse park he wanted to build next to his studio and into Griffith Park. Jackson owned the right-of-way leading from the studio to Griffith Park. Dick or C. Dick Jackson operated a scale railroad in the backyard of his Beverly Hills home. This is the first time that Walt personally operated a scale railroad. Or D, Dick Jackson sat on the Burbank City Council. He could not be convinced to change his mind about approving Walt's plan for a Mickey Mouse park next to the studio, leading Walt to ultimately build his park in Anaheim.
2: I'm going to have to go with the with the railroad because that's what jumps out at me whenever I hear Ward Kimball. So I'm going to go with, was that C?
0: That was C, and that is correct. Dick Jackson operated a scale railroad in the backyard of his Beverly Hills home. This is the first time that Walt personally operated a scale railroad. And, of course, we all know what that led to.
2: <laughs> hey. So okay and we open, and then i keep thinking you almost got me with griffith park because i was thinking waltz Bar and i was like but no that that was that came way after so yeah
0: way after <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't there for yeah originally <laughs> <laughs> okay craig so you're off to a good start mary joe craig over to you for april 5th singer mary costa was born in knoxville tennessee on april 5th 1930 an opera singer. Her first professional singing job was playing the voice of which Disney character?
1: Um, um, uh, uh, I'm thinking of Sleeping Beauty's name. Uh, Aurora. That is
0: correct. Walt Disney gave the 22-year-old opera singer, Mary Costa, her first professional singing job playing the voices of Princess Aurora, and Briar Rose, the 1959 animated feature Sleeping Beauty. Miss Costa was named a Disney legend in 1999. Very good. Three to two. This is the another, it's going to be another competitive battle <laughs> I can see here. Okay. Mary Jo, back to you for April 6th. Okay. The cover of Look Magazine on April 6th, 1971, featured the headline, Florida, the sweet life, the powder keg, and your first look at the magical new Disney World. Articles report on the near completion of Walt Disney World and the booming development of Florida. Who does the article name as the first citizen of Florida?
2: I'm gonna have to get with uh, multiple choice.
0: Okay, is it A, Roy O. Disney, B, Florida Governor Hayden Burns, C, the late Walt Disney, or D, Mickey Mouse?
2: The first thought that I actually thought was Roy Disney. So I'm gonna go with, with Roy.
0: You know, I always say go with your gut, but not in this case. That's Okay, Okay, Craig, for one point, was the first citizen of Florida, the Florida governor, Hayden Burns, the late Walt Disney, or Mickey Mouse? And my
1: guess was the opposite with Mickey Mouse, because that's the type of thing that Disney would do. Mm -hmm. And you are correct. It is what they did. So,
0: okay. Florida, that is Florida. Craig, that is four (laughs) points for you.
2: Not that I'm shaking my fist back east, towards the east.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, blame it on Look Magazine, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, Okay, Craig. Here you go. April 7th. A ceremony to officially break, break ground on which Disney attraction took place on April 7th, 2011. 2011. Um, I'll go with I'll go with multiple choice. Okay, is it A, the new Fantasyland expansion at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, B, Shanghai Disneyland, C, Cars Land at Disney California Adventure, or D, Tower of Terror at Tokyo Disney Sea? Mm.
1: Uh, Well, I mean, I feel like part of me feels like New Fantasyland was already underway, so I'm going to say that's too not on the right time scale. Part of me feels the same way about Cars Land, that it would have had to get started a lot sooner, so coming down between Shanghai and Tokyo, Disney Sea Tower, but I'm going to go Shanghai. And, and we can watch the opening ceremony on Disney Plus,
0: and that is correct. A ceremony to officially break, break ground on Shanghai Disney Resort takes place in China, and the ceremony features Mickey Mouse dressed in a traditional Chinese costume, a 50-voice Shanghai children's choir, a female soloist singing in Mandarin, and traditional Chinese drum music. Scheduled to open in about five years, Shanghai Disneyland will be the name of the theme park itself, but the property will also have two themed hotels and a venue for retail, dining, and entertainment. This will be the first Disney park in mainland China, but the second within the greater China region. Very good. Craig, that brings you up to six. Okay, Mary Jo, you have two, so so oh. you got to get April 8th here.
2: All right. Okay. <laughs>
0: Disneyland's Main Street Opera House debuts the Walt Disney Story presented by Gulf Oil. It opened on April 8th, 1973. Who was the special guest at the opening?
2: I'm gonna have to have
0: multiple choice. Okay, was it A, Walt's daughters, Diane Disney Miller and Sharon Disney Lund? B Disney archivist Dave Smith. C. Walt Disney's widow, Mrs. Lillian Disney Tryon's, or D. Disney CEO Don Tatum.
2: I'm going to go with somebody from the Disney family. What year was this again? This is
0: 1973. So it's been two
2: years. I'm gonna I'm gonna actually go with Lily and Disney. Okay, C. I'm gonna go with
0: C. That is correct. Lily and Disney. Very good. Whoa. So that is two points. And this um replaced Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, although the two shows were later combined into one single attraction.
2: So. That would have been so cool to see her.
0: It would have been, yeah. So, okay, very good. So you have four. So you're coming up now. Okay. So Craig, back to you now for April 9th. Who appeared on the cover of the April 9th, 1938 issue of Liberty Magazine? Uh go multiple choice. A. Walt and Roy Disney. B. Snow White and Dopey. C. Walt Disney and Mickey Mouse. Or D, Donald Duck and his nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie?
1: <laughs> hmm. I'm gonna go with... Hmm. I'm just... Uh, at first I was thinking Snow White. And then, though, I got tricked up on the Donald one. But I'm going to go gut. I'm going to go with Snow White. Well, this time, going with the gut pays off. <laughs>
2: it <is. laughs> oh, so it works for Craig.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it worked for Craig. Snow White and Dopey. The April 9th edition features the article, the story behind Snow White's $10 million surprise party by writer Miriam Stilwell. Very good. Okay. Craig has eight. Mary Jo, you have four. So you're you're in second place right now with our last question. April 10th, the official groundbreaking for what Disney attraction took place on April 10th, 2001.
2: Okay, I'll take multiple choice. I have an idea in my head, but but I know not to go with my (laughs) (laughs) guess. Is
0: it A, the Walt Disney birthplace in Chicago, Illinois? B, the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, California? C, the Walt Disney Hometown Museum in Marceline, Missouri? Or D, Walt Disney's Lafagram Studio Building in Kansas City, Missouri.
2: Holy cow! I have to... 2001. You said yes. Can you can you run through them quickly again for sure. me? Sure.
0: A, the Walt Disney Birthplace in Chicago, Illinois. B, the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, California. C, the Walt Disney Hometown Museum in Marceline, Missouri. Or D. Walt Disney's Lafagram Studio Building in Kansas City, Missouri.
2: I, I, this is just a wild stab because I, I really don't know. I'm going to go with the Walt Disney Family Museum.
0: Okay, that is incorrect. Of course. It is. Okay. <laughs> Craig, for one point, is it the Walt Disney Birthplace in Chicago? The Walt Disney Hometown Museum in Marceline, or Walt Disney's Laugh-O-Gram Studio Building in Kansas City? I'll go Hometown Museum. Uh, See? In Marceline? Yeah. That is incorrect. It was for Walt Disney's original Laugh-O-Gram Studio Building in downtown Kansas City. This building was like... There was almost nothing left of it. Um, the two-story brick building located at 31st and Forest Street was the site of Walt Disney's first film studio, laugh which he incorporated in 1922. It operated out of five rooms and occupied by as many as 11 employees, but its collapsing roof and boarded up windows, the building which housed the studio hardly looks like the birthplace. Of the world's biggest entertainment empire, Disney enthusiasts hope to preserve and restore the building and establish a museum on the site. and they they are still working on it. Wow. So, I think like I, the whole second floor was pretty much gone. So um, which is where the studio was. So, I love
2: that there's talented people who care that that want to preserve um places like this, you know?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. So okay. Well, Craig, congratulations. It was eight to Mary Joe's four. So Mary Joe, now, you know, we have we had a tie last week and yeah. you know, Craig came <laughs> out. So now do you want to come back next week to see if maybe you can pull it out? Uh, mm-hmm.
2: uh, I'd like to because now okay. you know since we've tied one and, and Craig's pretty pretty much squelched me on this one. <laughs> I'd like another try. Okay. <laughs> okay,
0: well we'll have you back next week for what one more go at this.
2: All right. Plus, Great. it's fun just to
0: try. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week. That was that was a fun competition there. We'll have Mary Joe back for one more week.
1: Yeah. It's gonna, yeah. We'll it's it's see what exciting. happens. Yes.
0: It will be. It will be. See who comes out ahead. Well, a lot of you may know that Disneyland announced an expansion last week. And we did a... Big hour-long show that Craig hosted with me and Mary Joe, and Denny was on it, and we talked all about the expansion. So, so you want to
1: go back and take a look at that, Craig? Where can folks find that? It is on YouTube.com/slash/DizUnplugged, and you should be able to see it from the front page.
0: Okay. Now that we've had a few days to mull it over, have you have you thought more about it anymore?
1: What, what are your thoughts on this expansion? Uh, I haven't really thought about it uh, too much, just because as we uh, tried to drive the point home over and over and over again, this is this is so long into the future that it's going to happen. That so many, so many changes could happen uh, along the way, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I just want to see something happen in, in this way. I think, I think it would be really great. For for Disneyland overall to to have an expansion in this area that they they didn't think maybe they'd be able to use but take advantage of the situation and where the state of the world was and, and really make make Disneyland an even greater destination than it already is. I mean, mm-hmm. it's uh, there's so much to do in California that's uh, you you could live there a lifetime and not get to experience it all, but you know it's it's also a lot easier to it's a lot easier to you know do something like say okay we're only going to disneyland if there's even more and more and more to see an experience and you don't have to then drive all the way back to to la to do universal or other places it can anaheim itself can be an even bigger experience that's everything in one package so i I, I look forward to the day that it all becomes a reality and I know it's going to take a long time, but I, I, am I can, I can wait, I can be patient. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think all of the poten- the potential attractions and the layout and all that, I think that's all blue sky mm-hmm. and yeah. And you're right. It's all about getting the zoning so that they can yeah. then move forward with how they're going to finance this, what it's going to look like and I'm sure there's other hurdles that we don't even know of.
1: And, and I'll be honest, to- I, I think some things are going to actually, you know, I think some things are going to, to end up coming true with it. Like I, I, in the examples that they gave of what they're building around the world that could potentially come to, to an expansion. You know, we, we mentioned it on the live stream that they showed frozen and Zootopia and tangled and, Peter Pan, Tron, uh, there's one more in the Toy Story Land. So they gave a lot of examples of what could possibly happen. And, you know, I don't see something like Tron actually coming to Disneyland because it's just, it, it fits best in, in Tomorrowland. And it's not. we're not talking about it, uh, also reinventing parts of the parks in an expansion. You're talking about expanding. So it seems like something like that would be out there, whether it was for California Adventure or Disneyland. It just doesn't really make sense when you have Tomorrowland, a, a great place for that attraction, as what happened to us in the Magic Kingdom. But uh, it, it, Frozen, Tangled, Peter Pan, any one of those, if if it falls in line with the budget one day when when Disneyland sets a budget for it i could i could definitely see one of those actually coming to fruition because at the end of the day whatever we see it's going to be based on intellectual property and mm-hmm. it's a very good chance that it will be replicated from another park because that is that is disney right now that's not that they're not making original creations but Uh, Usually when they're making original creations, the thought is, okay, now where can we also put it? Somewhere else. Right, right. It makes it a little more affordable. I know some people
0: on the interwebs were upset that, oh, there's no Wakanda in there. And I don't know, somebody zoomed way in and they were sure they found the Wakanda land in the drawings. And I thought,
1: okay, great. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Something like that is as simple Mm -hmm. as the artist who put together the rendering they might not have gotten any any true like guidance of okay throw this one there throw that there throw that there it might have been a thing where they said yeah just make it look kind of you know make it look theme parkish to yeah. an extent and put in what you want but if they make sure it's a Disney property and maybe the artist is like oh yeah I gotta put something like that in there I gotta put something that looks like Wakanda in there because it's you know with any concept art it's going to change it's very rare that the concept art ever ever matches up with reality and so you can't you can't read into anything you can't read into the stuff it's just it's fun to look at what they did say could potentially be on the table based on what's built around the world and for further the further the conversation of well this is what i would like to see so it's just mm-hmm. we got to have fun with it right now yeah yeah
0: and what's exciting is um, orange county for, for, um, where Disneyland is housed. They are moving in, in our rainbow of doom that we have here. We're moving into, they're going to move into the orange tier, which means when, in fact, by the time this is recordings released, they will be in the orange tier, Fall Goes as planned. And, um, which means Disneyland can now increase to 25% capacity and have indoor dining at 25% capacity. It's, so, but now, th- but now there's some weird thing about if an attraction is more than 15 minutes in length, it can't open. And I thought, okay, what kind of science is that based on? Yeah, you know,
1: yeah. I mean, so, well, it's also it's the same same aspect too of okay. Well, we're going to put plexiglass on rides that do absolutely nothing. Once you. You start moving around, and you know, I this is not political in any way. I just like I it it is it seems it seems goofy. It's one thing in the lines where you're stuck next to people, but once you're on the ride, I mean, it's a complete different other ball game with it. So I I feel like I feel like, and I know the not being in a ride for more than fifteen minutes that's a, a California thing. But the point is that there's always something goofy and there's an idea to to combat it usually that disney or another park will have something up their sleeve that's then extra goofy on top of that too and you know all all we can do is just sit here and put up with it and get through until we don't need to worry about this stuff anymore and we can start enjoying the parks like 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 we used to yeah looking forward to it it's it's gonna happen it's just you just gotta keep smiling until then it's the best thing to do (laughs) yeah
0: okay and well something else we can look forward to is we're going to have our q a episode coming up and we we've talked about doing this craig i don't think we've set a date or anything for it or have we we but have you set a date? not
1: uh well, okay. we did set a date, and because we did not announce this a couple of weeks ago as we original originally planned, uh we blew past that date and so uh, uh, we did okay. yeah, but that's not a problem we that's why we're announcing it now, so uh we obviously as you're hearing, we have not set a date for the mm. next time, so uh we are not it won't get into the details exactly of of when the episodes are going to be out but um are we going to start taking questions now right away michael
0: well how about if we why don't we tell people to start thinking about them and then uh and what are our parameters for the questions and so then let's say in the next episode we'll tell you the due dates when need when they need to be in and all that i mean we we they could start sending yeah. them in i just and, don't know if we're ready
1: yeah start thinking of the. it's it's good friday uh, you know it's let's not make it a great friday let's just leave it as a good friday <laughs> and so start thinking of your questions now and we will we will open up the questions next week uh but as always if unless you're just starting connecting with walt now and picking up with this uh for our Question and answer segments, we will take any question about Walt Disney, uh, the studio, the company, animators, imagineers, parks, all aspects of it. Typically, we break it down into two episodes, one on Walt in the studio and books and such. And then the other will be solely about the theme parks because we get... Get a lot of questions about theme parks, obviously, since that's part of the basis of the show. But, uh, we'll, we'll take all those questions and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll break them down into two shows and we will be receiving the questions via Facebook because a lot of people still have Facebook and it'll be on our Diz Unplugged Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Diz Unplugged. We'll have a, a post right at the top of the page that's, that's, posted and pinned there so that way you're able to see it and make sure that yeah you're not missing it but uh essentially you'll just ask your question there and then when we we close off the questions that it will be too late michael will go through all of the questions and we will then record the episodes and uh, the the basis for the questions is uh just try to avoid asking questions that are easily answered in a yes and no format because you know we want to we want to get in depth with them we want to we want to make it helpful not just not just answer simply yes or no and make a boring episode out of it so try to try to ask some uh, juicy questions and also along with that please 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 avoid the uh, the the great questions of what do you think Walt would think of this or what do you think Walt would think of that specifically uh, now that we we just talked about the potential of a Disneyland expansion uh, don't ask us what we think Walt would think of a Disneyland expansion because uh, we don't know and, yeah. uh, and only only Walt would know and i don't think we got the the séance crystal ball working for this round yeah we don't have Madame
0: leota on the show yeah it's
1: to tell us what's going on when we get her in (laughs) we'll be able to we'll be able to do that but just stick to just stick to questions that aren't about what would walt think and more than just yes or no questions and we will we will answer as many as we can and uh uh, of course we appreciate those who who uh, got to get the joke in and initially ask us a yes or no question and, and questions about what do you think Walt would think of this? Because, well, if one thing, if one thing, uh, is for certain, it's that connecting with Walt listeners definitely have a a fun sense of humor. Uh, Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll appreciate it, but then ask your real question as well too. (laughs) So we can answer it.
0: Okay, great. So, yeah, so we'll have all that next week. So, um, Anyway, well, the dates, the due dates and when the episodes are going to air and things like that. Yes. So Okay. All right. I, I have a question for you, Craig, since we're talking about films and all that today. So Pixar, poor Pixar. Okay, Onward was released, what, a week or two before the pandemic, pulled from theaters and put on Disney+. Plus. Soul, completely pulled out of theaters, um, the, the theater release date, put on... Disney Plus, not even Premier Access. Now Luna was just recently pulled from theaters and Luca. is also being oh sorry Luca. And also not being put on um is being put on Disney Plus, not requiring Premier Access. What
1: what do you think the thinking is that it's the Pixar films that this is happening for? I read someone else's post on Twitter so I don't want to take credit for this at all. Uh, I I don't know the exact answer, but it, this one makes the most sense to me. And the thought process that was given was: look at look at the big jumps and bumps in subscriber viewers. It's usually around these features that are released that are are that could be huge box office hits, but are just given for free because we. Uh, even though we're talking only Pixar in this case, we have to throw Hamilton in, too, which that was mm-hmm. a big selling point in the summer in the midst of the pandemic is let's get a big subscriber bump and let's get it by by throwing uh, throwing uh, throwing uh, Hamilton on and then doing it again. It's with Soul coming in right after. Right after um, Mandalorian wraps up its second season, as, with as a juggernaut, and right before Wandavision takes us all by storm, it's and that's why they can do a presentation just weeks after the last one and be able to say, "Well, then we had." whatever 90 million worldwide subscribers now we have over a hundred million uh it, it's all it's all about scratching the back and getting more subscribers in and i i think they're looking at they're looking at stuff like soul and and luca and and as they did with hamilton and say you know what these are ones that i'm sure people would pay for them but you know what we give them to for free on disney plus without the the hurdle to jump through without the thirty dollars Maybe with their research, they're saying, okay, if we give these ones to you for free, we know you're going to stick around longer, and you're going to become a a subscriber for longer. Maybe sign up for that year plan right away instead of the, the, the monthly plan. And that makes the most sense to me with it, because I could see when you're like, okay, I'm not a Disney Plus subscriber, I can... I can subscribe for now $8 a month and then if I want that premiere access for a movie I'm going to pay $30 so I'm up to 40 or for $80 for the year so double that for $40 for the year I can have an entire year of Disney Plus and whatever new is coming out and I'm going to jump on the year plan then so I think I think that makes the most sense. But they still have to retain a profit from from some of these theatrical leases, hence why some of these other ones that that you'd think, well, they're not as big. Why not throw them on Disney Plus for free instead? So that way you can save the embarrassment of a box office disaster. Well, something like Mulan, which we don't know which way it would have gone, you know, that it's a bit of a safety net. Mulan made some money on Disney Plus, made some money in theaters, some theaters out there. Uh, but because then it jumps over to free on Disney plus soon after they can say, well, we also got a subscriber bump and we don't really have to talk about the fact that it didn't do that well because you know, it's, it's Disney plus premier access and people were going to wait for it to be free. So I think it's almost a justification process at mm-hmm. some points too, but that's, you know, the, the, I, I am probably completely wrong with it, but that's the theory that does make the most sense to me. Yeah. It's gonna be interesting to see though if they're, like, they like. I think on Pixar continue to make these
0: multi million dollar films just to throw onto Disney Plus. So um, I think it'll be interesting to see.
1: Yeah, I think not for the long run, uh, especially the next time they decide to go back to a sequel with a Pixar film versus uh, a, an original concept, which we know was something like Buzz Lightyear. That's not uh, you know when when that comes along. That's that's got to be theatrical. That's a mm-hmm. that's a a juggernaut waiting to happen. So, oh yeah, the um, sequels have the built-in audience. Yep. It's the originals that are risky. Yep, risky. That, I mean, yeah, they they almost always pay off for Disney, but I don't know, maybe with uh, you could argue that onward was one of those ones where they might have been a little scared of and then releasing right before the pandemic and a lot of it being washed out because of the pandemic that might've, that might've made the decision for something like soul and, and Luca a lot safer for them to, to go with it on Disney plus. But I, I think that is part of it, but I think it's more motivated by let's get that, let's get that subscriber. Bump in. We think people would sign up for Disney Plus based on these Pixar movies that get a lot of talk, or or these series, or or something big like Hamilton. But we're not as sure with something like Mulan or Cruella. But with, and with Black Widow, I I think with that they're just throwing pasta against the wall and mm-hmm. <laughs> to figure it all out. I I know they're doing the Premiere Access, but by the time it releases in July. It's uh, movie theaters, you know, you have to feel like they're going to be rocking and rolling for the most part. Some distancing still taking place, but uh, at that point, everyone who wants to be vaccinated should be vaccinated. So it seems like they're going to be able to thrive come midsummer. I hope so. That, that would be nice.
0: So, All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, I used a few references in putting this episode together. Um, books, The Fairest One of All, The Making of Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs by J.B. Kaufman. Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, An Art in Its Making by Martin Krauss and Linda Witkowski. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, The, cre- the Art and Creation of Walt Disney's Animated cl- um, film, Classic Animated Film by J.B. Kaufman. And the Disney Princess, A Celebration of Art and Creativity by Charles Solomon. And a website I checked out was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs on the Disney Wiki.
1: So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on the random shows on the disunplugged podcast network that I'm on. And also on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster, As well as email, uh, Craig at ww.info.com. What about you, Michael?
0: You can send me messages at Michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at bowling 121 Facebook, Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, Michael Bowling that is. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connectingwalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for our Disney history episodes on a link Craig includes in our show notes or at disunplug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible.